Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, today's topic is mergers and acquisitions. As, I, as I've discussed in other podcasts and videos, a big part of my role as a consultant is just helping financial advisors debunk misconceptions and cut through some of the sales spin and noise that's out there in the industry to make the best time efficient decision possible. And where we've been hearing a lot of noise and things that simply aren't true recently are in the mergers and acquisition space. Recently, we've been working with financial advisors every day that have been told by other sources that they can receive seven, eight times their trailing 12 revenue for their entire practice, where 99.9% .9 of the time, that's extremely far off from reality. So the reason I wanted to do this podcast today was just to help you better understand the trends in the mergers and acquisition space. What are actual reasonable multiples that you can expect to receive for your business in this environment? You know, why are financial advisors selling their practice earlier in their career than ever before? And also, what are strategic acquirers looking for in a potential acquisition so you could best position your practice uh, for the future? Um, on the podcast today, I have Jeff Nash, my business partner and the CEO and founder of Bridgemark Strategies to discuss. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing, Corey? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, Jeff, I know you've had you know 20 plus years of experience um, on, on, on the mergers and acquisitions topic. And almost every day, me and you were having conversations about the marketplace. You know, why do you think there's so much confusion out there around, you know, business multiples and and what financial advisors can expect for their life's work? It's a great question. You know, I think some of the confusion is just people don't know. And the problem with people not knowing is, and it even comes from, I mean, I've heard stories about literally recruiting firms, or I guess they could even call them M&A firms that are cold calling advisors and selling their practices and, and literally saying, hey, it's worth seven, eight times. And it's just not even close to reality in the, in the, almost all of those situations. Uh, so, but what's interesting is all of that information culminates with an, an expectation that is kind of resetting the, the, the benchmark. You know, it was one point in time where we used to say, Look, a, a, a practice would go for two times re reoccurring or fee-based revenue and one times transaction revenue, and you can blend that together. And that was the value of your business almost regardless. Now with the, in the inclusion of a lot of private equity money in the space and in the business, and with the, uh, you know, with the demand for growth, we've seen multiples really going way up, um, probably not to the tone of, of seven, eight times revenue, as, as you're saying. But it, multiples have gotten more aggressive, and, it, and it's just understanding how that all works and understanding the the variability that can go into that, that, I think, is a really important part. I'm really excited that you're doing this podcast. I, I think your podcasts and, and your your two-minute talks on, on YouTube have been phenomenal for just educating the marketplace, Corey. So I'm, I'm congrats to you on that for, from an educational perspective, and, and uh, you know, hopefully we can educate some folks today as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I really appreciate the time. So- you know, while seven, eight times you're trailing 12 revenue is, you know, extremely far from reality for many, many firms out there, you know, valuations are at an all time high right now. I do get the question 
from financial advisors all the time. Corey, this sounds too good to be true. How can these firms actually afford some of the multiples that they're offering financial advisors today? So I guess that's a first question. You know, how are some of the firms out there that are buying practices for these large multiples? How are they making the money work? So it's a great question. And let, let's put some context around it, right? I mean, at what point in time is is it too expensive? And, and when we think about that, you know, here we are in in February of 2020, 2023, and the, you know, February 21st of 2023, and we're looking at companies like NVIDIA and Tesla that are trading upwards of a 50 times next year's earnings. Uh, and how is that, you know, is that too expensive or not? And it's always relative to the time period. Uh, you, you know, I think what's interesting about companies, you know, and if we look a year ago, those companies were trading even higher, you know, certainly from a stock price perspective, because they're down a lot from their their 52-week highs. Both of them are. And yet they're now trading at 50 times next year's earnings again. And so is that too expensive? Again, there's a relativity to it. What we've seen with the massive amounts of private equity money, and now it's also not just private equity money, but also private family office money that's coming into the marketplace. The reason there's so much money coming into the RIA and, and broker dealer and strategic acquiring marketplace, and the reason the multiples have gone up at these firms is because of growth rate, right? So ultimately, when we think about an NVIDIA or a Tesla, it really comes back to these companies are growing at such a feverish pace that that's why their, their stock price trades it so high. You know, so when we think about some of these, these strategic acquiring firms, that could be going at a 20 times EBITDA, 22 times EBITDA, even as much as 24 and 25 times EBITDA, which are untold, unheard of prices. How is that possible? Well, because they're growing. We see them growing at two and three, you know, two and three hundred percent growth every two, three years. And, and when we think about the mergers and acquisitions and, and kind of the consolidating of the financial advisor space, you know, by all accounts, certainly by my account, we're still in the second or third inning of a nine inning game. Right. So there's a lot more consolidation that's yet to happen. And that's why we're seeing so much institutional money coming into the space, which is pushing up price at the higher end. And beyond pushing up price at the higher end, that's also increasing price at the lower end because companies want to compete for that business. So when we think about, you know, a typical $150 million financial advisory practice that's doing, you know, a million, a million and a quarter of revenue, in the past that would have been maybe two times revenue. And it's certainly not today at seven or eight, as we were talking about times revenue. But these firms are getting priced out at a multiple on EBITDA, right? Which is really free cash flow. And if we then take that math of what's their top line revenue, what are their expenses, what is the EBITDA, and or just said, okay, it's just math. What does that same equi equation come to if it was just a top line revenue number? We're now seeing firms that have the better firm, three and four and even five times revenue. So still a far way off from seven or eight, but a long way away from what was two times. And those numbers are really being sought after. And, and the way the companies are affording it is because of their growth rate, right? So their company stock is worth significantly more. They're growing the business itself. They're, they're acquiring the business. They're acquiring the talent and the client assets. And then they're growing that business once it's on their platform at a much greater rate than it was growing beforehand. Mm -hmm. So all of that together, is a long-winded answer to your question of how are they affording this? Well, they're affording it because they're able to drive efficiencies down into the business that allows advisors to be better, better advisors for their clients, more focused advisors for their clients, growing their business, 
And the overall acquisition strategy on top of that organic growth strategy is driving that growth rate, which then again, growth rate drives price. So that's that's really the formula that we're seeing in the marketplace. Awesome. I, I think another thing to add, Jeff, that I've, I, I've seen a lot, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't getting a cash offer all up front for their business. There's a portion up front. There's performance bogeys on the back end. They're also getting potentially, you know, offered equity in in in, in the buying firm as well. So the total multiples all together, it's not an all cash offer. There's definitely some 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 strings attached. Oh, no question. It's funny. The uh, I actually am just writing a blog right now of whether you should be getting cash versus equity and what's the value of equity, right? And so that's coming out, you know, online, etc. But that's an important part of that discussion of, okay, what's the equity and what's the equity going to grow at is the equity of value. Going back to my philosophy, if I think about the next five years, and if we're in the second or third inning in a nine inning game, then there's going to be so much consolidation and growth that, you know, it's likely a lot of these companies are going to continue to do well, you know, but there's always things to be leery of, right? Not everyone's going to do well. And when we think about that growth rate, when we think about how firms are able to monetize their own growth, right, that growth then comes from what becomes their next turn. And so having equity in a company, it's not just, it's definitely feasible that that company will grow at a fast rate and that equity will grow at a fast rate, but it's not a guarantee. And all things aren't created equal. You know, when we think about helping advisors select the firms that they're going to and from the firms that, and we think about how much equity they could take, certainly there's a willingness of what they'd be interested in taking, but we also think about, okay, what's the growth rate of this firm? How much debt do they carry? What's their historical growth rate? Have they solved for all three components of growth? Is it organic growth? Is it next gen growth? And is it acquisition growth or is it just purely an acquisition roll up on growth, which it clearly has a greater level of risk to it? You know, so equity is is highly valuable, especially if it's growing, you know, doubling every two years, which we've seen in some of these cases. Uh, But it also could be riskier, especially as we start getting further into a more mature consolidation game. So, Jeff, I, I think a lot of financial advisors, when they're having conversations with, you know, recruiters or reading about multiples in the industry as well, you touched about it a little bit in the beginning of the podcast. But, you know, can you talk about what EBITDA like actually is, how a financial advisor can calculate that? And then also, you know, after that, what are some of the multiples that they could expect out there? You talked about $150 million, but... You know, what about beyond? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking that question because actually, as I was saying, EBITDA, I was thinking about it as not everyone even is speaking the same language. Right. Uh, so let's start with just some simple math, right? There's a, Most firms at this point are focused on revenue and assets under advisement, AUA, you know, also called assets under management, but advisement is kind of the bigger number where it's not just what's under fee-based of being managed, you're advising on all assets. You know, a variable annuity could include assets under advisement, for example. And so when we think about the the revenue and the assets, you know, let's start with just revenue. And revenue becomes trailing 12 months revenue. And trailing 12 months revenue is really broker dealer revenue. So for folks that might be in a wirehouse environment who's looking at their total revenue that includes lending and, and and cash management features, that would be excluded. It's really just the broker dealer revenue. Now how do we take what do we do with that that number? Right. So from from total revenue, 
we'll take expenses out of total revenue, right? And then when we think about the M&A space, compared or differently than a wirehouse check, a wirehouse check is just taking total revenue and putting a multiplier on it. In the M&A space, it's on this term called EBITDA. And EBITDA, of course, earnings before interest, tra- interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And EBITDA is the way it's calculated for a financial advisory firm, starts with total revenue. Then you subtract out expenses. Expenses would be if you have a broker-dealer, there's broker-dealer expenses. If you have an, your own independent RIA, there are expenses to manage that. If you're using somebody else's RIA or the broker-dealer's RIA, there are expenses related to that. And my, you know, administrative, office space, you know, many things that wirehouse advisors aren't paying for these things, but there's a cost allocation, which comes down to you know, your gross margin. This is what we also call EBOC, new term. EBOC is earnings before owner's compensation. And so think about that as an advisor's gross revenue, not the firm's gross revenue, it's the advisor's gross revenue. If we have a $150 million producing firm that has 25% expenses, right? So let's just say it's it's generating a million of revenue for simple math. And it has 25% of expenses, which includes trading costs and technology and, and administrative and office space and all of those things that you have to pay for, whether directly as an independent advisor or through a wirehouse where the firm is paying for it, your remainder is the advisor's gross margin, gross revenue. That's now what we would call EBOC. In the independent world, that EBOC number could be 65 to as much as 75, in some cases, even higher, even 80%. Minus from this number, when we consider selling a business, we then subtract out what we would call replacement cost. Replacement cost is an advisor, even though that's their gross margin, that's 65, we'll say 65, 70%, has to pay, has two factors in that or two, two, uh, two components that make up that 70%. Number one is paying an advisor to service clients. And the second is being an owner of a business. And so on average, we would look at an advisor making, say, 30% to service clients. That's building new clients. That's doing the work as an advisor. That number could be higher. That number could be lower. That number could be a salary of $200,000. That's a variable number that is very fluid, but we'll use some averages to come up with that 30%. 30%. The remaining in that earlier example where you have 70% EBOC or, or gross margin, that remainder becomes 40%. That 40% is, is free cash flow. That 40% is EBITDA, all the same terminology. That 40% is what, what the strategic acquiring uh, RIA firms that are private equity backed, that's what they're buying. So we, on average, will see that EBITDA ratio ranging from on the lower end, 25 to 30%. And on the higher end, upwards of around 50%. That's what we typically see. Now, the multiples are a really important question. If we see in that earlier example, a 40% or let's say a 50% EBITDA, keep the math simpler for me. If we see a 50% EBITDA on a million dollar business with 150 million in assets, and that means after paying an advisor's salary, the business is still generating $500,000 worth of profit. 
In that example, we may see that business sell for six times EBITDA, seven times EBITDA, or even eight times EBITDA, sometimes even more. If we use simple math and we say, let's just sell it eight times EBITDA. It's not uncommon to get eight times EBITDA for that business, assuming important things such as there's a growth rate, right? The business should be growing, not dying. You know, if there is a next gen to help service those clients longer term after the advisor were to retire or if the advisor is planning on staying around for more than five years. So those are factors that can get to that eight times EBITDA. And we can talk about that in more detail, Corey, in a, in a minute. Let's stay on the numbers. That eight times EBITDA, again, if the EBITDA margin is 50%, eight times EBITDA is simple math. That's four times revenue. So that business that's doing a million dollars is actually worth $4 million in that example. And those are real life examples. That's not meant to kind of inflate numbers. Those are clients that we would be working with currently, you and I, that are seeing those numbers. Again, assuming certain things. The last assumption that we have in there is that the business is a much is a planning centric business. And that it's almost it's majority, if not exclusively, fee-based asset management. Awesome. Yeah, and for and for wirehouse financial advisors that are that are listening to the podcast, that's the difference between a generous two and a half times trailing 12 revenue multiple for two and a half million at ordinary income tax rates of estimated 40% versus a $4 million valuation at long-term capital gains rates at an estimated you know 20% tax rate. So that's a humongous difference. Yeah, I mean a different you know, I mean run the, run that math out, and I'm not going to do that for the podcast here, but that's easily three or four times more more after tax money in your in your pocket. Of course, depending on what state you live in, because the state income tax on that as well. Uh, but I mean three to four times multiple is what you could see in the difference. So Jeff, we've worked on uh, we've worked on a few of them together. You know, some of the firms that are getting, you know, the 11, 12, even you know, 14 times EBITDA you know, valuations, what separates them from some of the other firms out there that would get a lower valuation? What, what, what are the qualities that are giving them the, the maximum valuation? It, it's largely connected to, to size is what we see. Uh, you know, there tend to be some ranges that we'll see in the marketplace that can go up or down by one or even two turns. You know, so what do I mean by that when I say up or down by one or two turns? If I say a price on average is eight times, then is it possible to get to nine or 10? Yes, it's definitely possible. Is it possible to get to 14 or 15 if the average is eight? Highly unlikely. Uh, you know, never can tell who's going to be a buyer that's going to be super aggressive and, and desperate to buy something, uh, but highly unlikely for the vast majority of the buyers. There's a lot of price uh, neutrality. One, they all end up in a lot of similar ranges typically for obvious reasons, right? They understand the value of the business. Uh, so you end up with some similar ranges. So an extra turn or two is certainly possible, but it's largely price-based. When we look at a, a couple hundred million dollars in assets under management, we're looking at six to eight, maybe seven to nine. Uh, you know, in the half a billion size, it's probably in the eight to 10, possibly nine to 11. In the billion dollar plus size, you know, it just, everything shifts up a little bit more. So you're going to be in the, the nine to 12, 10 to 12, potentially even 13 or 14 when we start looking up in the, in the markets. What's really interesting as we start looking at those multiples, we're seeing uh, from a year ago, right? Where a year ago, 
prices were off the charts. Everything was great. You know, the economy was great. Interest rates were zero. It wasn't that, or practically zero. I mean, I guess they started raising a little bit a year ago, but it was, but things were, were really humming along. What we have seen in the marketplace is because there's still so much demand and because there's still such a focus on growth is the price actually hasn't dropped that much. Uh, it has gotten more, more, uh, I guess I would say intelligent as it relates to how to price it. So we've seen more of a shift towards maybe a little bit less upfront, more on the back end, putting more growth measurements out there to get to those same numbers. Uh, but the pricing overall can still be very close to where it was a year or so ago uh, in the marketplace. It's Again, there's more factors that can go into it. There's more variability that can go into it. Uh, you know, but it's, and it's probably a little bit less upfront money that goes into it uh, as compared to where we were a year, year and a half ago. But there's still a lot of really aggressive prices in the marketplace. For a high quality business, this is the part that, you know, what can an advisor do about their business? And this is maybe something that we can spend a minute or two on. Because when I think about this, the high quality businesses today are incredibly sought after. And on the flip side of that, the non-high quality businesses, I literally are seeing these strategic buyers who you would think would buy almost anything are saying they're not interested. And the high quality businesses are those that are still growing. That's number one important element. If they've stopped growing over the last one, two, or certainly three years, then the price will dramatically fall. There still will be buyers interested, not as many, uh, and it will be a lot more regionality. So you could, be, you could find some of these national buyers that have 20, 30, 40, 50, or more billion in assets that are buying on a national scale. And if your business is falling and you're in a marketplace where they're not in, they probably won't be interested. If you're in a marketplace where they already have a presence, then they would likely what they call tuck you in to an existing presence. And you could get likely a, at least a good price or maybe even a better price with that tuck-in strategy. So one of the important messages here is if you're, if you're five years away, ideally, that's, that's really probably the best time to start looking at this. If you're two or three years away and you've already started to kind of coast, you're a little bit late to the game. Uh, and so we should definitely have conversations. Okay, how do you maintain what you're doing and still maximize that price? Assuming you want to take care of, you know, kind of sell the business to the next, you know, kind of and keeping it, keeping it around. There's always a strategy that we always see from advisors that, that of course, you know, advisors want to utilize, which is they're just going to milk the business. You know, it's not necessarily the best service for the clients, but it's definitely something that advisors can choose to do and just milk the business. Um, but the five-year window is a really important window when we think about that. Being fee-based majority, being planning-centric, uh, and being growth and having time to still grow, those are some of the key elements that will like, get you the better more buyers. And of course, more buyers become more bidders and more bidders become better priced. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Um, so in the beginning of the podcast, we talked about some of the trends that we've been seeing. And I think a lot of financial advisors, when we speak with them on the phone and talk with them about their options, I still think there's a lot of financial advisors out there that think when you know they sell their business, it means that you know they're 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 selling their assets. They're working for a couple of years and then they're you know phasing off into the sunset. Um, where in 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 fact, there's been a over the last couple of years uh, a, a pretty big shift where a lot of financial advisors actually want to sell 
and stay in place. Um, and, and we have more of those conversations every day. Can you kind of, you know, talk about that shift and what that potentially looks like? It's an important shift. It really is. It goes back to what I was just saying is having five years or longer. Uh, you know, for those advisors that are thinking, I want to retire in a year, the prices that we're talking about where it can be really robust pricing is it, it may have already passed you by. And so the sell and stay strategy is really designed a lot of it by these firms. These firms, part of the reason they're growing is they get advisors that are still energized to grow, who are frustrated with the the regulatory, the all of the elements that are being imposed by their broker dealer or compliance professionals. And at the end of the day, they love being doing financial planning for clients and helping clients, you know, with achieving their goals. And that becomes a lesser and lesser percentage of their time as their business grows. Whether you're in a wirehouse or otherwise, we all know the same statistics is that less than you know 50% of your time is spent upwards on other things. And, and it's a little bit higher on the independent side because they got to run a business and a little bit lower on the wirehouse as it relates to those percentages uh, on, on other things, right? A little bit more time on just servicing clients. And the more you can take that off, all those things off of your plate, the more focused you can be on helping clients and that allows you to grow your business and it re-energizes you. And that's what these firms really are interested in. They're interested in advisors growing. They're interested in the sell and stay scenario more than anything because their belief is they can help you grow faster. And it's not just their belief. It's a proven track record at this point because this is not something that is you know, it's, it's, it, we're not that early where this would be the wild west, if you will, where we're just trying, still experimenting. This is well proven that they can increase your efficiencies and help you drive growth at a faster rate, which drives the growth of their company. And having that alignment and then equity ownership, everybody's aligned and everybody's moving in the same direction. And it really is that sell and stay scenario is, is what's preferred. What's, I'll take that a step further. What does that mean? That's not a 60-year-old looking to stick around for three to five years and then retire. We're seeing more and more advisors in their 50s and even in their 40s who are looking at this strategy, recognizing that there's an expression. They could be you know, the captain of a dinghy you know, or maybe the lieutenant on a battleship, and they're going to have a lot more resources to be able to support their clients, provide better expertise, better planning, better results. And having more fun doing it because of all the obstacles. And then and they still own equity in what becomes a fast-growing company. And that's what checks a lot of boxes for a lot of people, uh, is they recognize that they can actually still have a lot of fun and still do really good work for clients and still have equity in the growth opportunity to really continue to make a lot of money beyond just cash flow by having equity in, the, in that parent company. And we speak with a lot of financial advisors, Jeff, that you know, they've built an amazing business. They absolutely love working with clients, but they've grown into this captain role and they don't really want to do all the roles that, 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 that come along with that. The, the, the HR reviews, like being the leader, they want to get back to serving clients and, and building their business again, the things that, 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 that are really fun. And they have the ability to do that with a sale many of times, outsource the things that they don't want to do and focus on what's important to them if they find the right fit. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, and some of it maybe is just putting some framing around it. I mean, I know of one particular firm. I mean, they're like $60 billion now, um, but I know an advisor that joined them eight-ish years ago, maybe it's even 10 at this point, 
Uh, and he's literally grown the equity value because of the, of the, the company he bought, he sold his company. He was a $250 million. He's now managing 2 billion and he got equity in the company. And the, the, the return on that equity investment has been a 50 fold growth growth number. So, I mean, if you think about, I mean, that's literally, a, if he had a million dollars in equity, I don't know what he took, that million dollars is worth $50 million. And that's different than the 2 billion of management that he's now managing, which is also his cash flow. Uh, it's insane what we've seen with some of the growth from these companies and and how and, and you think this person ever looks back and says, hey, this was a, this was not a good move. Clearly. Right. And does he have frustrations? I'm sure there are some frustrations every day. Everybody's got frustrations. There's nothing perfect. Um, but overall, his he's doing more things that he enjoys doing. He's actually increased his client minimum. So he's dealing with only million dollar plus clients and he's just having more fun than he's ever had. And, you know, and, and that's and he's done really well for himself, obviously. So it's it really is a story when you, you know, when you take away those distractions that that become almost a, a pain on the business and now you can focus and you still have equity in this thing that you're doing and you have everybody, you've got a lot bigger team all driving towards equity. You know, the only thing I'll say on equity, the one last thing, which may be a bit of a segue here, is for those folks out there that are going through this conversation, there's a couple things to think about. Number one is be careful on the amount of equity versus the amount of cash, right? Because there's a diversification strategy on some of this. Number two is make sure you understand the company that you have equity in. And number three, also understand that there can be share class differentiations in the equity pool, right? So does the private equity or, or family office or whoever the institutional investor is, do they have the same share class as the CEO? Do they have the same share class as you as an advisor who's been acquired? Uh, those are important questions to ask and understand when you think about, you know, equity distribution and and why. Yeah, you know, many people have only, you know, they've sold zero businesses in their life. This is their first time they're considering it, and there's, you know, there's a lot of pitfalls to avoid and a lot of questions to ask that, you know, a financial advisor might not just know to ask because it's their first time doing it. So definitely makes sense to work with someone. Um, you know, who's done this before for sure. But, you know, J Jeff, one other big trend that I've been seeing um, that a lot of financial advisors might not know about as well um, is the partial sale. You know, I'm, I'm working with a financial advisor right now, you know, a multi-million dollar firm. You know, the father's been in the business for 25 plus years. He wants to get out of the business and pass the business on to his two sons. Um but he wants he wants an equity event to be able to uh, you know retire comfortably. Yet he wants the flexibility to pass something on to his sons that they're going to be able to build and own down the road. And I can I tend to have more conversations like this every single day. We talked about the entire sale where you wind up being an employee of the firm that buys you. But can you talk about the partial sale a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I may come back to a different concept as it relates to gender. What, what you're calling the kids is we all kind of call as G2 because it doesn't have to be the kids, obviously. Uh, and and in that scenario, it's any G2, right? Generation two, whether it's kids or non-kids, it's the, the principal has the similar challenge. And, and again, going back to firms that get better multiples, firms that have a G2 in place 
are absolutely going to get a better multiple than a firm that doesn't have a G2 in place. So not just the advisor's willingness to stick around and tenure and growth rate, but also having that next generation of advisor inside of their firm is an important piece to multiples uh, from a strategic buyer perspective. As it relates to the partial sale, it's a great strategy. It's another way to solve uh, you know, what becomes a common problem. What we've seen is when we think about G2, no question. I mean, there are tens of thousands of advisors in the industry that are seeking a G2. And that's not even an exaggeration. Literally tens of thousands of advisors are seeking a G2. There are more advisors. I think the statistic is there are more advisors over the age of 70. And it may even be over the age of 80. I can't I'm trying to remember the exact statistic. More advisors over the age of 70 than under the age of 30. And by the way, that stat may be over the age of 80, under the age of 30. So there's a huge need for G2 in, in the industry. And again, tens of thousands of advisors. Having that solve only solves half the problem because then what happens is I've got a client right now that has four advisors as G2 and that you can't sell to a G2 is part of the problem. Most 30 and 40 year olds are still earlier in their lifestyle, you know, life cycle. They've got kids at young ages and they're not interested or willing to take on a multi-million dollar loan separate from their house to buy out the principal. And that's what the transaction becomes, is you have to take on a multi-million dollar loan, put it in your own personal name to buy out the principal's interest. And many of the G2s are great advisors and could even turn into a, you know rainmakers and leaders, et cetera. But that, to go from point A to point B of financing it and borrowing all that money to take out that, that senior advisor is something they're not willing to do. And this is where the partial sale comes into play. The partial sale allows you to sell what becomes 30%, 40%, 50%. There are different firms that have different formulas, but it allows you to sell a percentage of the business, which essentially buys out the senior advisor. And then the business itself, right? So the senior advisor still has some equity, but now they're taking the cash for that, what becomes that 30%. So their their piece drops way down. And now it allows the junior advisors to continue to just grow with the business. The senior advisor is not looking to necessarily retire tomorrow. And that partial equity piece becomes an institutional investor in your business. And this we've seen um, moving down market is where we've seen it, even to the, to the tune of a couple hundred million dollar practices, right? Financial advisor firms that have a couple hundred million, million and a half of revenue, uh, you know, typically two million of revenue. The floor can be in that one and a half to two million revenue, um, but it's not in the multi-billion dollar you know, tens and 20 million of revenue space anymore. It's really moved down market to have these solutions available. And it's the same type of a solution. In a, in a $2 billion firm, you have a similar scenario where it's just that much more money that you can't, the juniors can't afford to buy out the senior. And in a $200 million firm, it's a very similar scenario, just different numbers, different scale where they can't afford to buy it. So that partial scenario, it, it's great to bring it up. Because again, I don't know that people know it's out there in the marketplace, uh, you know. And it's a two-part solve. Part one of the solve is out there, you know, finding G two. There's a huge need of G two. In fact, as you know, Corey, we're we're kind of just launching a website to really help G one advisors in the marketplace finding G two advisors right through our website, Bridgemark Strategies. Uh, and it really is that that goal of matching those folks who would like to be a G two with those folks who need a G2. Uh, and so that's something that we're launching. That becomes part one of it. Then part two is 
okay, now that you've got G2 in place, great, the company's going to have a better multiple most likely. Now, how do you finance that? And there's clearly debt financing that some people might be interested in, but now there's also equity financing. And that's the big shift, that equity financing to be able to do a minority and still retain control of the company, still retain the direction of the company, and still, again, sell the company again in the future should you want to sell it again. So many solutions out there. It's uh, it's great that the industry is constantly pivoting. Um, yeah, and, very complicated. No question. And now even some of the, you know, the broker, the, the top independent broker dealers out there are, are you know, a, a, a acquiring financial advisors underneath their umbrella in minority and entirety as well. So, you know, ev everyone seems like they're stepping up to the plate for sure. Jeff, do you think there's anything that we didn't cover on the call today that you think, you know, listeners should know about? You know, I think we did. A, it was great. I mean, there's so much information here, um, you know, and, and actually, honestly, Corey, I would love to see maybe some of your YouTube videos pick up maybe just bits and pieces, just kind of highlights in two and three minute segments, you know, so that someone doesn't necessarily have to listen to the whole call if that's something they don't want to. Uh, so just something for you to consider the but there's so much, you know, the, the biggest thing here is clearly the complexity, right? There's so many different directions. There's so much, so many, so much opportunity for folks. And it really starts with help educating people. You know, the only other thing I would add to it is when it comes to evaluating firms, what our philosophy has always been around feel, fit, and financials. And in a strategic buyer type perspective, that doesn't change. Feel, fit, and financials is by far the best way to find the right partner for your solution. Uh, it helps you manage the, the team, the staff, the junior advisors, if that's applicable, helps you message to your clients how and why you selected a firm, right? Going through the proper evaluation of any firm and utilizing feel fit and financials, I think is an important piece to, to the add to that. Awesome. Jeff, I, I, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Corey. Uh, I thought, I thought it was great. And if, if anyone has any questions on the mergers and acquisition space, what their practice is worth or what their options are, um, please reach us at www.bridgemarkstrategies.com and, and we'd love to have a conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Hope you have a great day. I really, really hope you find this podcast of value. If you do, please make sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. 